The New Testament book of Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul from prison because of his ministries for Christ. This one short six-chapter book offers the believer rich and memorable Word of God for his or her identity, what it means to know Jesus, our goals for Christian character, behavior, joy in the Holy Spirit, Christian marriage and family, and how to fight your spiritual battles. The book of Ephesians is a book of power to transform our daily lives. This book that we are looking at here, Ephesians, is a beautiful book and is well known among Christians. Uh, Many Christians consider this book to be one of their very favorite books. It's a book that I often recommend when people first start reading their Bibles. It's one of those books that happens early in the list that I recommend to people if they haven't read it before. Last week, we started in Ephesians chapter 1. We gave some of the background of that great city and this place where Paul did his longest ministry. He spent more of his time personally working in Ephesus than anywhere else. And in the first chapter, he told us what we had already received in Jesus Christ. You know, one of the challenges of the Christian life is that as we go through our days, sometimes what God has given us, sometimes what we have with the presence of the Holy Spirit grows dim in our eyes. We forget what we have been given in Christ. We forget the spiritual power that Jesus has given us to draw on every day. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul gave us these strong encouragements. He starts with the blessing to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. There's not a single spiritual blessing that exists that you can't find in Jesus Christ. And then he tells us that even though we don't see it yet, we've already been seated in the heavenly places with him. And he describes for us the forgiveness that we have, the adoption, the grace, the redemption of our sins through his blood, and forgiveness of all of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I'm really grateful for that, that it's not dependent on my perfectness, (laughs) but it is dependent on his perfectness. And that gives it real power. Now, what we discover in Ephesians chapter 2 is that Paul is actually thinking in kind of a before and after sort of frame of mind. You've seen pictures, right, of before and after a person went through a particular thing, right? You've got people who've never worked out, never tried to lose weight before. We have the picture of them before, and then we have the pictures of them after when they look so fit you could grate cheese on their belly, you know, because they've got those abs now. Or sometimes we've seen pictures that get worse. You start with the person what they used to look like, and then after they have five facelift surgeries, what they look like. And there the after is worse than the before. But what we find out in Ephesians chapter 2 is that Ephesians 1 was about the after. It's what we received after we put our faith and trust and dependence in Jesus Christ. 
Paul actually spent some time in Ephesians chapter 2 talking about the before picture. Where were we before we knew Christ? And see, by getting clearer on where we have been, we get a better picture of what Jesus has given us and where he is calling us to go. In Ephesians chapter 2, he starts this chapter with a sentence that I don't know that I would use it in any other situation. He goes, and when you were dead. You remember that? You remember back when you were dead? That's a funny thing to say, isn't it? You remember back when you were dead? This is a spiritual thing he's talking about. Do you remember when you were dead in the trespasses and in the sins in which you walked when you were following the course of this world? Do you remember back when you were dead? And he uses two words here for being out of step with God. The word trespasses has to do with us breaking rules, breaking commandments, taking freedoms that actually put us outside the will of God and ultimately do damage to ourselves and damage to people around us. That's what a trespass is. A trespass is when there has been a boundary made and we have broken through that boundary inappropriately. And it has been against the will of God and it has injured us spiritually and perhaps injured someone else. The second word is a word that you have heard before. It's now maybe becoming a little old-fashioned in our culture, the word sins. The word sins in the original language has to do with being able to hit a target, that you aim at a target, but when you fire, you miss it. You are off target. So God has a design for us. He has something he can do with us, something he can do in our lives. Have you ever had conversations that went so much worse than you expected them to because of your own anger or your own reactions or whatever came up inside of you that caused that conversation to go south? Or have you ever had situations where you knew a something better that you could have done, but instead you did something else because of whatever was driving you? See, we have these two words. The trespass is crossing outside the boundaries that God has offered us for our own well-being and for his praise. And we've got the target that God has designed us in our lives to hit. But very often we take hold of the bow and miss the target entirely. Back when you were dead, in the trespasses, the constant wandering outside of his boundaries, and the sins being off target in which you once walked, Now, you know when the Bible, both Old Testament and New, uses the expression walked, we're not talking physical walking. This is a spiritual expression that refers to your habit of life, how you were living at that time. What was your normal way of living? These were trespasses. These were sins, off-target living. This is the way that you used to habitually live when you were following the course of this world And then he adds this expression about the evil one following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. That's Satan. 
We hate to think of ourselves ever in this life following or being submitted to Satan. But Paul's being very honest with us here, right? We're either going in the channels that God has directed us toward, or we, whether we know it or not, under the leadership of a different master, are pursuing something else than what God has said. We are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work. Even now, even today, the spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience. There's an interesting argument between Jesus and the religious leaders in John chapter 8. And the assumption that they are making is that we are sons, children, inheriting children, of whichever parent we are imitating. That's how the conversation goes. If we are children of Satan, then we will lie, we will deceive, we will follow our own pride, because that's what Satan does. If we follow God, we live for the truth, we serve, we love, we act like him. And Jesus wrestles with the religious leaders to try to get them to look at their own behaviors and say, I know you say you're God's kids, but what do your behaviors indicate about how you're living? What family are you a part of? The sons of disobedience. We're going to choose which family we're going to be a part of. We're going to choose which inheritance will be ours by which father we attend to, among whom we all once lived. Paul says here that we have all been trapped in these trespasses and sins. We have all been part of the community of the sons of disobedience, among whom we lived in the passions of our flesh. Let me help you understand something about the way the Scripture uses the term flesh. So often, and you can be forgiven if you ever make this mistake, when we hear the word flesh, we assume we're talking about the body. That's what makes sense to us. That's how we use the word flesh. But it's a funny thing in the Scripture that when we use the word term, the term flesh for one set of options of life, and we use the term spirit for another set of options of life, it doesn't mean physical and spiritual, even though that's what it sounds like. Fleshly is that which is not of God. The life of the spirit is that which is of God. That's how Paul uses that terminology. The interesting thing is that not everything physical is bad. Not everything physical is good. And actually, the same thing is true of spiritual things. If I commit idolatry, that is a spiritual thing which is bad, correct? So my life, if it's in the flesh will be composed of physical activities that are in the flesh, and it'll be composed of spiritual activities that are in the flesh. The Bible talks about things like idolatry, which I've mentioned, and legalism, interestingly enough. Colossians chapter 2, this same writer 
will talk about legalism as being a religion of the flesh, a religion of this world, a religion which is natural to people who do not know the freedom of the grace of Christ. The spiritual side of life can be both physical and spiritual, right? I can live spiritually by doing good things in the body, how I love my family, how I take care of the poor, how I minister to those who are in the body of Christ. Those are all physical things, but they are a life of the Spirit. And in the same way, I can do spiritual things spiritually, can't I? I can tune my spirit into worship God. I can feed my spirit by going to the Word. And so we, we read here that there was a time when we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, not just referring to the physical body, but also referring to that whole system of the world, because there are fleshly passions that have much less to do with my body. If I want to dominate someone, if I feel abusive or hateful or angry, I may do things that are fleshly in the body that have nothing to do with the way we often use the term. Carrying out, notice how this goes, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Notice how that fleshly stuff is of the body and of the mind. It's an interesting duality, isn't it? And we were by nature, this is a spooky expression, we were by nature children of wrath. Many, many people wrestle with the problem of evil in this world. Why does a good and all-powerful God allow the things to go on that go on? Our world puts out chaotic, random damage to all humans through their whole lifetimes. Why does God allow it to go on? Well, the Scripture is very, very clear that it's not going to go on forever. And nothing could be clearer in the Bible except that this world is not the way God wanted it to be. This chaos, this evil that we live in, this darkness, is not what God originally desired for us or for himself. But the interesting about this is that this is also the time when we are free to choose. We are free to choose to go to the light or we are free to choose to go to the darkness. And when God cleans away all of the evil, which he will do all at once, it also closes the door on the freedom to choose which kind of child I want to be. Do I want to be a child of God or do I want to be one of the children of the disobedient? Which, in this case, is also called a child of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's heavy language, isn't it? The reality that many, many, many people will be lost in the wrath of God because they have turned away from following Him. And you and I see the results of those choices in our newspapers, in our daily experiences at work, wherever we go, whatever we watch, we see the results of those choices. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. Wow, verse 4. Those two words are full of grace. But God, 
being rich in mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is what I need, but I don't deserve. Mercy is when I could deserve something very severe for what I have done and who I have been. But instead, the one in power elects to treat me with kindness and grace. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This sentence can be very confusing to people of the world because of the way we use love. We use love in America for things that make us feel good. And if something or someone makes us feel really good, then we say, I love him, her, or that a lot. And it's a measure of our feelings. Here you see something very different. We were by nature children of wrath. We were people of the flesh. We were lost in the desires of the body and the mind. And God loved us. And what we have to notice is that it wasn't because we were lovable. (laughs) Far from it. God intended his goodwill toward us and carried it out. And it was not a response of his feelings. It was a response of his intent. He determined that he would love us because we needed his love. He desired something better for us. Notice that loving someone doesn't always mean you give them everything they want. Sometimes he loves us enough to say no. I can look, I'm old enough now where I can look at my life and think of some times that if he had said yes to me, it would have been a disaster. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Paul will speak about this at length in Romans 6, 7, and 8. When he talks about when Jesus came out of the tomb, that was my resurrection. That was your resurrection. And so he has those beautiful if sentences all connected with baptism in Romans chapter 6. If we have been buried with him in the likeness of his death, so we will also be raised up with him in the likeness of his resurrection. His death becomes my death, so I don't have to die eternally. And his resurrection becomes my resurrection. Even though we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I can't be good enough to do it. I can't get there on my own steam. I am a wicked, fallen human man. I sin in thought and word and deed. I cannot come into the presence of God unless God makes a way for me to do so. And that's true about all of us, isn't it? Thank God he made the way. Thank God he made a way by grace. What is grace? Well, grace is not how you and I think. 
I, I find in my own head because of the way I have been raised, and I don't mean any negative statement on my family when I say this, I just mean how things are. I have a hard time staying in a grace-filled mind for more than 45 seconds or a minute. You remember when you quit being treated with grace? I mean, your situation could be rougher than mine. But I went to pre-kindergarten, and I went to kindergarten. And back in those days, when I filled out papers, my teacher put smiley faces on them and stars and sunshines. When was the last time you ever got something from a supervisor that had a smiley face or a sunshine on it? And I want you to notice that at the tender old age of six, you started getting your papers back with numbers on them, didn't you? You turned your paper in and your teacher put a number on it. Now, the number is not grace. The smiley face, the sunshine, that was grace. Because whatever you give in, it comes back happy. Yes? But you turn in at the age of six, you turn a paper in, you get a number on it. And that starts a journey which in the United States lasts for 12 years. 12 years you go to school and everything you turn in comes back with a number on it. Now what your teachers encourage you to do is to make those numbers as high as possible. Why? Because if those numbers are as high as possible, maybe then you'll get entry to another school. We call that college and you get to do more work and turn in more papers and get more numbers on your documents that are given back to you. And if all of your background is good enough, eventually you can get a job where what do they do? They take the hours that you spend there, they multiply it by a number, and they pay you by giving you a piece of paper with a number on it, right? You've been doing this forever. So now when we talk about how much money someone has in the United States, and it's an idiomatic expression where we will say, how much is so-and-so worth? And it refers to how much money do they have in the bank. That's not grace. Grace is a freely given gift that you cannot earn. It's a gift that's just given because the giver decides to give. And I want you to be clear about this. If, you know, three days before Christmas, somebody gives you a present and you didn't expect that present, so now you run out and you suffer through standing in a Walmart line at 11 p.m. so you can buy something to give back to the person who gave you a gift and you didn't expect it, the gift you're getting for them is not a free gift. You're giving that because you feel a sense of obligation. That is not grace. Understand? God forgave us in Christ because of his grace. It is a way that you and I barely know how to think about. We barely know how to live there. He gave us his grace and raised us up with him, that is Jesus. And here we get this amazing expression again, just like chapter 1, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, I can't see that. I don't, I can't tell physically with my own senses that I'm already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But we are. If you are in Christ, 
when you go to heaven, you're going to find little place cards and things like that by your seat and by the place that he has made for you, and by the, the gifts that he gives you from Revelation 2 and 3. Your name is already there. Your spot is reserved because of the blood of the Lamb. You have a location already set aside for you. you he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, remember what I told you? When you find the words that, so that, or in order that, that's going to introduce a purpose clause. And so that here is going to tell you why God was nice to you. Check it out. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. You mean God was nice to me so he could be nice to me? God was gracious and loving toward you so he could be even more gracious and even more loving toward you? He wants to experience eternal intimacy with you. He wants you drawn next to him in praise and joy and love for all time. This is why he has offered you this relationship through Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, if anybody ever memorizes anything from Ephesians chapter 2, it's the next three verses. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. These verses are extremely famous, and they have become a foundation of Christian doctrine. Even among people that don't know much Scripture, many of them will quote this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. We can't lose that. It's not because we obey the legalist traditions of whatever our denomination puts on top of us. Human beings are so addicted to the idea that we've got, yeah, you know, we've got this, you know, the the bulk of the Christians, but if you really want to be a first-class Christian, you need to dress like this, you need to avoid this, blah, 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 and the legalism goes on. No. Ephesians 2.8 says, It is by grace you have been saved. I can't earn it. You can't earn it. We enter into that grace through faith. As I've told you, faith is not just a mental agreement that Jesus exists, that he's the Son of God, that he can forgive sins. It's not just that mental agreement. It is to determine that you're going to trust in him. You're going to depend on him. When he says something, you're going to believe that what he says to you is better than what could come out of you yourself. That's what we do. We submit our wills to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we trust Him. Because we know He has all power. He's God. He knows all things. And He loves us best. He's the one who really cares for our souls. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your doing. It is the gift. It's like the synonym for grace here. It is a gift of God not a result of works. I can't earn this. Only God can do this. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's an amazing thing that even in this time, when someone declares his relationship with Jesus Christ, people still think that we're saying it's because we're better than they are. And I'm going to suggest to you that that misrepresentation happens because of how abundant legalism is in the church. 
we have not been clear enough in telling people that I am a Christian because I have figured out that I am hopeless, (laughs) that I am sick, that I am morally fallen, that I am too weak to do anything to make myself a better man. I have to have the help of God. I am in a spiritual school and hospital that Jesus called the church. The church is a school and it is a hospital. If your church does not feel to you like a hospital for the sick and a school where you can learn how to mature in Christ, you need to go somewhere else. This is a core message of God's Word Community Church. This is for growing us in the Lord and for healing us in our sickness. It is not a result of work so that no one can boast. And look at verse 10. You want to know why God is changing you? We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Why does snap-on tools make hammers and screwdrivers? Because they intend those tools to be used. Why does craftsmen make wrenches, both box wrenches and open wrenches? Because those tools have got a job to do. You and I, we have a job to do when we are bought by Christ, take Him as Lord, and are remade in Him. You are His workmanship. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Are there two flavors of Christians? Those created for good works and those created to sit and watch? Not here. Created in Christ for good works, notice, which God prepared beforehand. Wow! He's got works out there designed for you. He knows what kind of an effective tool you are and what kind of effective tool you can be. And He is creating you, maturing you, designing you for the kind of work that you can do in His divine hand. I myself am a bent screwdriver. And I'm really, really glad that God can do amazing things even with damaged tools. That's a good thing. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice that doing good works as part of God's workmanship is supposed to be part of our normal habit of life. It's supposed to be the way we go through our hours, the way we go through our days, that we should walk in them. Therefore, verse 11, what do you do when you see the therefore? You ask what the therefore is there for, right? Therefore, now he's going to take them back to his past. Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. A Gentile is a non-Jew. If you are not a Jew, then today you are a Gentile. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called by Jews the uncircumcision. That basically means everybody who is outside of the Old Testament covenant with God. You were called the the uncircumcision. You were called that by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time, separated from Christ... There was a time in the history of the world 
when the people of mankind did not have the Messiah. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. God made a covenant of promise to Abraham. He followed it with a covenant of promise to Moses. He spoke through David. He spoke covenants of promise through the prophets. All of those belong to the Jews. My forefathers, my forebears didn't have it. We were outside. God made the decision that he was going to select Abraham and his family, and through that family of people, all the nations, that's us, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It was God's intent to bless us through the Jewish nation, the descendants of Abraham. But until that time, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, y'all who once were far off have been brought near how? By the blood of Christ. You were far away, too far away to cover the distance yourself. But through the blood of Christ, you have been brought now into the presence of God. He himself is our what? He himself is our peace. He is our peace within. He is our peace between us and other people. He is our peace with God. He is our peace, who has made us both, who is the both. Well, in the context, it's got to be the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the non-Jews. He brought us together in an integrated church, integrated racially, integrated ethnically, integrated nationally, Jews and Gentiles brought together, He being the peace. He has broken down in His flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Paul uses here a metaphor, a very, very powerful image, where he talks about, he uses an image of a wall that actually existed. When you look at the old Jewish temple, there was a number of courts outside the inner shrine. The inner shrine was where the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be, the holy place and the most holy place. And outside that building called the shrine, there was a series of courts. But when you get into the innermost courts, those courts don't allow Gentiles like you and me. They allow only male Jews and female Jews. And on the wall between the courts, there was a sign written in Greek that says, if you go beyond this place and you are caught, your blood is on your own hands. It was capital punishment going through that gate if you were not a Jew. Paul makes it clear that when Jesus died on the cross, that wall is forever gone. That separation is forever gone by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man or person in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. It's an interesting thing to do to hostility, isn't it? Kill it. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both, whether we're Jew, whether we're Gentile, we both have access to the same God by the one Spirit. 
This is an amazing time to be talking about the destruction of the wall of hostility because we are so close to Baltimore here. And in the last three weeks, we have heard every single flavor of us and them that you can hear. We have heard us and them expressed as black and white. We have heard us and them expressed as rich and poor. We have heard us and them expressed as the police and the policed. Our nation has turned all its eyes on this location because of the walls of hostility that we as human beings naturally erect. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Peacemaking is a dangerous piece of work. It's difficult. It's thankless. And sometimes it's extremely difficult to find out how to do it. It was three weeks ago today on April 12th, that Freddie Gray was taken into custody and was injured, fatally injured as it turned out, in that process. It was two weeks ago today that he died after spending a week in a coma. Now the six officers who were involved in that arrest, restraint, and transportation of that prisoner now those six officers have been charged and the trial is yet to come it is an extremely interesting thing to look at the biographies of those six officers some of those officers have bad road behind them some of them have histories of violence that their organizations have had to handle Some of the officers, however, have a very different kind of history. One of them was an EMT and served helping people with an unbroken record of high performance in helping people in crisis. Three of the officers are white. Three of the officers are black. One of the officers is female. And she is the one that I am most challenged by because she is the one who identifies herself as a devout Christian, a devout Christ follower. She became a policeman because she wanted to live as a model for what young African-American women could accomplish in their lives, and because she specifically wanted to help build a bridge of peace between the neighborhoods and the police. Only three months ago did she attain the rank of sergeant after serving in the force for five years. And the thing that I think we are all aware of is that no matter what she has accomplished in five years, how many times she's put her life on the line, how many times someone has received a word of grace or correct direction or Christ from her, Her whole life to this point is going to be judged by this one incident that happened on April 12. And it's hard for me to imagine where she must be emotionally today. 
to pursue this work to bring grace into a terrible situation and to find herself named with a list of six people that resulted in the death of a young man who was arrested, as it turns out, wrongfully. What he was accused of was, in fact, not illegal. It is a tragic story. It is a tragic story full of us and them. And I tell you, one of the scariest things that I have heard is that some of the people of Baltimore, and this is a quote from one of the persons, it has been said now, peace has lost its reputation in Baltimore. Because by peace, we would not have gotten the policeman charged. It took the riots to create the charge. So, where does that leave us as a nation? How did Jesus end up on the cross? By the threat of a riot. It took the threat of violence and wrongdoing and mob rule to put Jesus on the cross. Now we have just faced a situation where the large inner cities of our land are starting to come to the conclusion that they cannot be heard, they cannot be treated justly without violence. Do we have something to pray for? Do we have something to pray about? It won't take zombies to make an apocalypse. You know that, right? Because these kind of apocalypses have happened in human governments over and over and over again in the history of this earth. If people don't respond with grace and peace creating, we stand at the beginning of a very difficult time. He came, verse 17, and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, whether we're police or people from the neighborhood, whether we're black, whether we're white, whether we're rich, whether we're poor, whether we're male, whether we're female, whatever us and them there is, we both have access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ by the one Holy Spirit that he gives to us. That's it. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. Who called you that this week? A fellow saint. And members of the household of God. And what is the church? The household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets We don't identify apostles and prophets in our church because they are in the foundation. They are the ones who are privileged to speak the word of God with miraculous confirmation. Apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being what? The chief cornerstone. We just sang cornerstone today, didn't we? Jesus was the most carefully crafted stone by which the whole building took its shape and lined out its straight edges and its measures. Jesus is the one that defines the parameters of that household. And he is with the apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church. We, Peter will go on to say, are the living stones built up in the walls into which this temple God lives 
by his Holy Spirit. God took away walls of hostility, and out of it, he made a church. He took away walls of hostility and made it a temple of the Holy Spirit. How many churches have you been in which were walls of hostility instead of a unified temple in the Spirit? This is where we have to remember who we are and what we are for. In Him, in Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Please notice that in this text, we can see part of what Jesus said when he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. That means in the between, between the two of you. Do I have the Holy Spirit in my life? Do you have the Holy Spirit in your life? Yes. But there, and individualist Americans are very quick to miss this, But there is also a way I can experience the Spirit that goes beyond what I can do individually. And that is by being with you. There's a way in which Jesus dwells between me and my brother. Between me and my sister. In the between is one of Jesus' very, very favorite places to work. And when we try to make peace with brothers and sisters that we are estranged from, we're inviting God to take his place in that between. Let me close with the big question. The message of Ephesians 2 speaks to us about how we were taken from the world and included in God's divine plan and God's divine people. We were once guilty, but the laws that made us guilty were removed in the sacrificed body of Jesus Christ. God broke down all the guidelines which excluded us and made us into an us and a them. He challenged us to receive God's grace as God's workmanship to do God's good works. Among these good works is the difficult work of being his peacemakers, doing what we can in our lives and in our world to make people one. Sometimes there is no easy way. Then we pray and we seek God's divine opportunities to increase peace. Jesus says that the peacemakers are called the sons of God. Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, Spirit of God, make it so among us. Amen.